Welcome back, listeners, to another Ag Watchers podcast. Uh, this week we have a special guest, which I'll get to shortly, but uh, you've got the regular Zandra Whitelaw, also known as Wheat Watcher, in uh, the blue corner, and uh, in the red corner, Matt Dalgleish, also known as uh, Meat Watcher. And um, we've got uh, Michael Gooden, uh, a farmer um, at Wagga area. Um, and Michael got on to us, um, oh, it was after the uh, podcast, I think, that we had with John Francis, where we were discussing a little bit about the regen ag space. And um, there was a few things in that that Michael wanted to kind of, you know, cover off on and have a chat to us about. Um, and uh, we're always keen to um, to get, you know, well, I wouldn't say opposing views, but maybe slightly differing views, I think, would be a fair description. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Michael. Um, did you want to give us a quick rundown of, of um, what your operation is there and, and uh, kind of, you know, what, what you do? Yeah, thanks, gents. Thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, so, Michael Gooden, I am uh, grew up on a family place 70 k's west of Wagga in Riverina, uh, been back in that business um, since the early 2000s, yeah, went away, did a few things and then um, off to uni in Geelong and then back home in the start of the millennium drought and working in that family business and then in about 2008 we split the business up in, um, you know, through a succession plan and my wife and I uh, started running one part of that and then my brother and his family are on another section. Um, and then that sort of flowed on 20, 2018, I actually got a job full-time off-farm working in a local, um, like for the local land services. And then only then this year, then that role turned into another full-time position working with uh, RCS Australia, Resource Consultancy Services. So I actually work full-time off-farm and, uh, yeah, you know, our, our farm, um, 1,000 acres west of Wagga uh, with sort of, 130 hectares of flood irrigation, uh, mixed farm, sheep and cattle. We run a small um, Angus stud and we sort of trade um, sheep and or cattle on top of that. So that's, yeah, that's that's what I do day to day. Rightio. And so would you uh, would you badge yourself as, like I know it's a bit of a buzzword at the moment, regenerative farming, would you badge yourself as that or are you just a farmer that take some of those principles but you, you consider it more that you're just doing what a good farmer does how do you how do you consider yourself in that regen space yeah it's a really interesting conversation that it's um i suppose you know the question is or what like what is regen farming and it, you know if you had asked me 12 years ago 10 years ago i would have said oh it's all horse shit it's just you know it's it's smoke and mirrors and hoity-toity sort of thing and um but you know the reality is a lot of those opinions are probably coming from people who don't really understand what's going on. And I mean, that happens in lots of walks of life, really. Um, so like for me, yeah, I'm, I'm actually, you know, quite proud to identify myself as a regenerative farmer. The reasons behind that are because of what we're trying to achieve. Quick question for you. So, so one of the things that I find with the regen space and I think this is one of the biggest criticisms of regen agriculture is that no one's quite sure what it is. <laughs> so so I, I also almost get the, the feeling that people who are regenerative farmers don't actually have a definition for it. So yeah. like if, if I talk to 10 people about regen farming, I reckon I'd get 10 different views on, on what it is. But so yeah. I guess what, what is your like very short, sharp, summary of what regen farming actually is yeah so for me probably 
there's three things that it, that it involves. Uh, one is addressing the root cause of the, of the problem. So, you know, we don't want to treat symptoms like from a livestock management perspective, uh, plant production perspective, business perspective. If we've got an issue, um, we've got to deal with the root cause of it. Um, where the other component of that is we are very um, goal orientated. So we've got our, our visions and goals for what we're wanting to achieve, both personally and in our business and in our landscape. Um, acknowledging that all those three things are interlinked and we can't separate one out from the other. Um, and then I think the other part of it, uh, it segues nicely into the carbon story. So we're really mindful of uh, wanting to improve our soil health. Um, you know, from our own personal perspective, we're wanting to improve our landscape function rather than um, either maintain or de de degrade it. And I think that's the thing that is probably sets people apart. Um, and it is, a, it is like that was, you know, there was a couple of conversations last year around, not specifically the one you had with John, but there was another one earlier in the year and it was like, well, if I'm not regen, I'm degen. And I don't think that conversation's happy. Uh, it is positive because... It's not either or. Um, I mean, sustainability was around for 30 or 40 years and that was seen as really important, but I don't want to sustain a degraded resource, so we want to actually improve it. Um, and, like, we need to. Like, financially, we need to improve it. Um, you know, health-wise, the hours that I was working, all that type of thing, I didn't want to be doing that for the rest of my life. So we had to make some pretty big changes to say, right, I will... What do we want to do? How do we want to do it? And then what's the process involved in achieving that? And it wasn't until we sat down and, you know, answered some of those tough questions, look yourself in the mirror and say, look, who do you want to be as a person? How much money do you want to make? How are we going to do that? And start really answering those questions. And you don't have to be regenerative to do that, not at all. But um, it it's quite coincidental that once you start doing that, then some of those things that you once did that you just didn't even think about twice about then all of a sudden maybe don't line up with your values or who you want to be as a person or how you what type of business you want to be operating so just without without then having to dig at your, your folks um uh, michael um when when i read into it that when you inherited your proportion of the farm there that, that you are now that it was run in a different fashion and you had to kind of over time you made changes or did you start running it in I guess the, the the old school ways, and and then over time you kind of realised that there were other ways you could do it that fitted more with your lifestyle and more with what you're trying to achieve. Oh yeah, very much so. Like I was as in you know high input, high output as you could get, and and so you know, and I had been in this really fortunate position. I my mid year at um, at Marcus Oldham, I worked on a property in the Western District, and. That property was, you know, there's 10,000 crossbred ewes and 600 Angus cows and I'd never seen so much grass growing and, you know, we were throwing urea out. This was in 2002, throwing urea out like what's going out of fashion and, um, you know, measuring grass and animal production was off the scale and it was like, wow, this is awesome. And um, But what was happening in that system was it was just these lots of metabolic issues with sheep, um, and cattle calving problems, um, you know, ryegrass staggers, all these things, biodiversity loss, all these things that were, uh, and the business was making pretty good money, like well, actually really good money. Um, and especially if you think about it now, like you've got, you know, your land business and your production business, like both those arms of that business were very profitable uh, financially, but 
um, you know, the, the, the business as a whole, the ecosystem and the people operating in it, it weren't functioning as well as we could. And for me personally, I got back into our family business and like walked straight into the front end of the millennium drought. And, you know, as a family business, we tore up, you know, half a million dollars after half a million dollars, like three or four years in a row. And we were degrading our resource. So we had paddocks blowing away. And uh, so, yeah, after three or four years, it was like, well, wow, this is not, um, you know, we had weed-resistant issues. We had, um, you know, machinery, like depreciation on machinery. Um, yeah, you know, all these things, it, a lot of... Um, uh, compromises between running a mixed farm with livestock, you know, trying to kill everything in a fallow situation in the cropping phase and then keep everything alive from a, a, a livestock perspective. And it was just a, a, a lot of pushing and pulling. Um, and then also we we're just working like ridiculously long hours, quite competitive within a family about who could work the most. And that wasn't, it was great for a short period of time, but it's not um, healthy um, longer term. Uh, and that, so all that sort of just imploded within, in some ways. Is that the is that the, the catch though? That and and Andrew and I, um, apart from being pig farm owners, which are, is an intensive system and and quite different to what you're operating. Um, but we understand you know some of the on farm stuff, but we're not certainly not on farm specialists in 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 that space. We're you know our, our specialties markets, but and we from what we see as a, a external kind of people. You see this narrative where people like yourself that are that are involved in the region speak its values, and I can see a lot of what you're saying. It rings a lot of bells with me. Andrew often calls me the greenie of the TEM group. Um, it aligns with some of my views, but but I still the economist in me and the and the markets person still looks at that and says, you know, when you're looking for efficiency and big gains, um, does the region space offer that, or is it is it one of those things where you're really saying, well, we can have these short term big gains. Um, and but you're degrading your resource and you're having these alternative issues and these competing issues that you outlined or do you say look we're not going to be as productive in, a, in an annual sense um, but we're going to have a much better longer term future and we're going to be building a resource that's going to grow in value and we're going to have a better lifestyle but we're going to forsake some of that efficiency on farmers is that the narrative or or have I got it wrong and once you've got the regen set up you can be just as um productive as a as the you know kind of your mainstream type of of operation yeah I think there's there's a couple of components to that I, I'm a big uh fan of the word optimizing production not maximizing and so like you know even in the copping game you know you're probably better off shooting for 80 percent of your yield and reducing some of that risk than going for 100 percent all the time and so in our, you know, in our business, we just, you know, our number one aim, our, our biggest profit driver is our stocking rate um, in terms of our turnover of animals. And for us, the most important thing is to match our stocking rate to our carrying capacity all the time. And with what we're doing with our rotational or cell grazing is that every day we know we allocate a mob and a certain amount of area of feed and we give, we feed that to them. And we know whether they've eaten more or less or we've given them too much or not enough. And we're getting that feedback loop like at the end of every day where that was a big issue that we had, you know, when I was working down the Western District or, you know, as a family farm when we were sort of more set stock, you didn't know you, through the pasture monitoring that we were doing then, you just couldn't see whether you're going to hit that wall in 30, 60, 90 days. Where I can tell now, I can tell 90 days out if we're going to be running out of grass and that's it. For me, you know, getting into this market space, 
that's a really powerful position to put ourselves in is we're making these decisions buy, sell, stay the same a long way ahead of where our, you know, so-called competitors are. And that so that provides opportunity. And I think the other factor is that people misunderstand is our stocking rate has probably come back from, say, long-term, say, 6 DSE a hectare, which is what we sort of run 100Ks west of Wagga, oh, it's just 70Ks west of Wagga, but we've come back to probably four and a half, five DSE, but we've done that with absolutely no supplementary feeding um, and very little uh, external fertiliser use. Uh, our cost reduction is basically halved, and so our, our profit margins have increased. Um, and then also probably arguably our risk profile, certainly you talk to our bank manager, our risk profile has changed completely because we're just not, we're not taking those risks that we used to have. And like we've got, we've got a reasonable amount of debt. Um, we need, there's things that we need to achieve. So it's not like, oh yeah, good on you. You can do that. You can afford to do that. Like we wouldn't, I didn't get into this because we were just sitting back thinking, oh, what could we do? Like we got into this because our backs were against the wall. We had, Debts up to our eyeballs. Um, we couldn't basically function. And it was really a last resort. It was either sell up or um, look at this. And, you know, so that was, that was you know, I can only really speak in our own situation, but that was the, the decision. We didn't take it lightly to go down this path, but we'd spoken to people who had done it and they said, yeah, you know, get into it. So, so I'm, I'm quite curious about the regen thing and about where the – a lot of things that I don't want to label, but let's just label them just now. <laughs> Normal farmers <laughs> and, and regen farmers, yeah? But just just bear with me a second. <laughs> maybe, if, maybe go with traditional farmers, uh, you know, or old right, school. So, that's what, so, yeah, normal implies that a certain element of um, that, that's kind of the right thing. Um, whereas, I'm, well, yeah, we're not sure yet, are we, Andrew? Standard, okay? <laughs> or, or, majority farmers, okay? Yeah, the, that's a good and, one. And then you've got ones who are, are regen or labelled as regen farmers. But if I look at practices that are in, involved in a lot of farms, which are standard or, or majority farmers, to them, to me, a lot of them seem like they have principles that would be considered regen, especially especially in livestock. Like if I look at somebody like a rangeland farmer in. Um, Alice Springs or, you know, Northern Territory or something like that, then surely like they're not, they're not putting out fertilizer or whatnot. Would they be considered regen because they're just basically eating off of what is already naturally there, I'm guessing. But then also even things like cropping, we've got a, the move to like sort of that no-till farming or minimum till farming, which puts a lot more carbon in the soil. Is that a form of regen practice or or not. Oh, I mean, I think where this is, where this is really going to um, probably polarise is from a consumer perspective. And at the moment, there's a lot of hype marketing around about, you know, how things are produced. So, you, you know, you got, and these are big plays like General Mills and JBS coming out saying, look, we want to, we want our produce to come from regenerative farmers, you know, and exactly, Andrew, I agree with you. Like, what is it? Uh, and, so like that that side is going to drive and you'll get guys who, you know, money talks. So if you're in a position where you can um, 
sell to a supplier who wants that produce, pay a premium for that because their customers are happy to pay a premium for it, and then convert. And on the other side too, you can set up an enterprise within your business that's in alignment with what you're already doing. That's going to allow you to uh, have a latent in- income from a carbon um, enterprise. Then, like you'd be, you'd be sort of mad not to. If you, if you go called Regen to do that, well, you know, what's the worst thing that that could, you know, it's not a really a bad outcome in a lot of ways. Because that's what I was thinking that that if I if I look at say certified non-GM, that's quite obvious. You're not growing anything non-GM. If I look at organic, it's pretty obvious. Uh, It's it's something where you've got an organic certification. And if I look at biodynamic, you've shoved some cow shit down a horn. So so make sure you do that on a full moon, mate. On a a full moon. So, so it's obvious what you've done. You're, he's, you're, the, he's the regen farmer having a crack at the biodynamic farmer. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but this is the thing that there isn't, there isn't a perceived sort of true label on what is regen farming, and I think that's the biggest difficulty people have. And I, and I actually think most farmers in Australia are regen, but they just don't call themselves that. But and that's where I wonder if is having a label a good thing. I actually think well, it's, I think it's better that we leave the interpretation quite wide. Because if there is a premium, then it means that the whole of this Yeah, I think the labels come from, you know, and we've experienced this personally. When we went down this path, like we were very much ostracised, you know, in our community, socially, all that type of thing. And so, and that was a real challenge. Like personally, it was a real challenge, you know, and it's petty in a lot of ways, but, you know, I've got friends now who I was friends with 10 years ago. I'm probably not now because, you know, and it's stupidly because of how what we're doing on our farm. It's silly, but that's just how that's how polarizing it is. But I think a bit of that is why this whole movement has um, galvanized a little bit now is because we actually want to identify as being different and, and actually relatively proud of it. Um, circling back to your point, though, Andrew, I think, and this is what, what I the, probably the main point I wanted to make in a rebuttal to John and like I've known John for years he's was a consultant in our family business and gave us a lot of advice for a long period of time his father is our family stock agent and all this so I you know I feel like I'm qualified to talk uh, directly about that um but is, is this is this where you're just about to give him a big a big roasting like no, you, no, you, no, not at all because what I'm saying said the nice is bits. Like, it's 90 percent of what we're wanting to do is exactly the same like you know Reduce your cost of production, maximise your stocking rate. Um, you know, that's they're two things that are really uh, extremely important and they're the big profit drivers in in any business. Like, you know, that, that's there's only three things you can do in a business to make to make that to make your money. And so, you know, gross increase gross margin, increase turnover and reduce overheads. That's it. There's no other way to generate or improve your profit. But the part of it that is really important, which gets overlooked, is you've got to have a resilient business you've got to have a, a a business that has got healthy soil that is functioning with a person or people in it that are um, at their best and can in the position to be able to make good sound decisions at critical times you've got to have the capital behind you so you can make the most of the opportunities that are there in front of you and if you're in a business that you know isn't you you're not in a good space mentally um you've got really poor soils you know subsoil acidity or weed resistance or all this type of thing you're not going to be maximizing the opportunities that are there in front of you so we're just trying to run a business that puts us more in control 
you know, in an environment when we're operating with so many things out of our control. Like, I just just wanted to run back onto one thing that you said earlier on about the lifestyle choice. You obviously you've got you work full time off farm. Yeah, I do. Yeah, and um, and lifestyle lifestyle is a big thing. I think that lifestyle is important because you don't want to be running yourself into the ground. And I guess one of the things that that we hear a lot from, like even in the Western districts, is people moving out of of sheep and and into and into cropping because of the lifestyle. Because looking after livestock takes, you have to be there more often. And you can probably spend a little bit more time in a cropping enterprise. You don't have to be there every single day. Once you've planted a crop, you don't have to be there every single minute of every day necessarily. Uh, Whereas livestock, you've sort of, in a lot of situations, dairy, sheep, and cattle, you're quite quite stuck on that property really for for a lot of the time. Do Do you think with this sort of regenerative agriculture, that because a lot of the factors that you do, you're doing a lot of early on groundwork setting things up, like a lot of planting of, of mm. sort of perennials, that type of thing. Do you think that sets things up so that ongoing, you can kind of almost not not leave it completely, but you can spend more time away from the farm or you can you don't have to spend every every waking hour at it? Yeah, well, in our situation, like I, you know, I was, well, I still do, you know, I get the, the um you know the bench benchmarking data home second benchmarking data and so from a labour efficiency perspective uh, we were running you know five thousand DSE and uh, their data was suggesting that you know in a in our business like ours that should be one labour unit should run twenty thousand DSE so I was like all of a sudden I was thinking we don't need to be at our well, like if I'm going to run an efficient business I should only be here twenty five percent of the time then if that's the case so. I looked it around and thought, well, what can we do to be so I can only be here twenty five percent of the time? And we worked towards that. And within a year or two, I set up, we had the structures in place that that was the case. And then, you know, I was fortunate enough to be in the position where I could go and get a professional job. But you know, had a uni degree and a few other contacts here and there. And so now I'm in this position where we've got, you know, generally the best of both worlds. I can run our farm on you know ten hours or less a week, um, work full time for. Um, uh, you know, a great company that's uh, educating people around Australia, and then also, you know, the remainder of that time I get to spend with the family. So it's, it's really, um, you know, that sort of has given me that opportunity. Like I could have still been working full time on our farm, like easy. But what I was finding was that I was wasting my time on all this other stuff that didn't need to be done, and you're probably spending money you didn't have and working in areas that weren't actually necessary. Where now I just go in, do exactly what has to be done, at, you know, at the right time and the right thing, and then get out and go and earn money doing something else. And you know, I'm very fortunate I'm doing what I really enjoy. What uh, one of the things when you're talking about the the progression, I guess, of of, of your, your, your your journey, I suppose, Michael. Um, how when, from the time you made the decision as a family to go down this path, um, obviously there would have been, you know, it doesn't it doesn't all come immediately, so. How long would you say it took before you could kind of comfortably say you're in that space fully and, and you know, that, that the system was then operating, uh, you know, successfully for you? Um, did it, was it, you know, was it a few years worth of kind of slowly getting to where you got to or like, was it a long process or did it happen almost as soon as you started changing your practices that was almost instantaneous or, you know, what was the, what was the pathway? Yeah, it's a great, great question, Matt. And it's probably one of my big motivators to be, reasonably vocal about this now because 
we actually didn't transition really very well at all. Like we basically went cold turkey from high input to no input um, straight away. And that, you know, that was the worst thing to do. We did that for a couple of reasons. We had a lot of financial pressure at the time. And so we, we weren't in a good space to be making good decisions. Um, and so we just went cold turkey straight out of, um, you know, cropping business, uh, basically straight into livestock um, quite quickly. And, yeah, that was a big, like, that was a real challenge. We, you know, a couple of years we had, the farm we had just was full of ryegrass, resistant ryegrass, so we just started grazing it. But then after a couple of years, then it sort of had to transition out into a perennial pasture. We didn't really go and sow pastures. Um, if I had my time again, we would um, have transitioned out and probably actually would have still kept some of our cropping going just but do it differently, do like a, some more diversity in our cropping, diversity of species within crops and then diversity of crop types, manage our weed resistant issues a lot better. Um, and I didn't know much about it then. Like this was sort of 10 or 12 years ago, but if I had a, if I knew then what I know now in terms of, um, you know, some of the work that the, like Vic Notil are doing in terms of, just see the stripper front, um, reducing their synthetic inputs, uh, building up soil health. That would have, and I've, you know, I've seen a lot of those guys burn onto their places and what they're doing, and, and those guys are in a lot better position, uh, especially in that mixed farming space. They're putting themselves in a really strong position to grow a high dry matter producing crop, like in the winter time, which traditionally is when we don't grow a lot of feed. Like our highest value feed is probably in that June July period. And then, you know, you're resting your perennial pastures at that time. And then when you've got to lock those crops off and get stock off, you can put them on to your, par your perennial pastures that are rested. And then, you know, conversely, you harvest and then you flick those your livestock back onto stubbles and graze them. And then you give your perennial pastures another rest. That combination is, is a pretty, um, pretty good position to be in. Um, so, yeah, we didn't do that well. Uh, but yeah, that's you know you can't we can't go and undo that. Um, yeah, and and if I had that's what you know this is why I'm wanting to work in this space now is to help people transition. People say, oh look, you can't do it because we can't afford to do it, and it's like, well, um, yeah, I just sort of argue. Well, I know from our own perspective, we couldn't afford not to do it. Like, and now mm. we're we're running a profitable business. Um, you know, we've still got some pretty big targets that we need to meet, but we are, we've got a, a, an ability to be able to do that. Um, mm. where, you know, I just don't know how we would have got through the other way. So one of the things Andrew mentioned earlier around that, you know, saying that he's, um, he's, uh, what do you call it? Your majority farmer and particularly in a cropping space was saying that, um, that they're already doing some regen practices in, in, you know, like, you know, till or minimal till, but would you say to be truly regen, it has to have a livestock component to it. Um, so from a cropping space, you know, those that are considering it, you know, if you're going to be badged, and, and I think, I guess, taking the point too that Andrew said about having a broad term for region, I think if you're going to chase that premium that you're after in a dedicated market, you've probably got to have, like organics got a specific kind of certification, you probably need to be able to um, verbalise what region is and what it, what, what, you know, the minimum requirements of regen has to be, and that might be having livestock. Um, but you've, I think you've got to meet some certain criteria to be able to badge yourself as regen if you're going to actually have a, a marketplace where you can sell into a premium. I think you've got to have it. Um, I'll just be interested in the thoughts on that, Michael. Yeah. Well, there already is. There is programs around. Like I'm, we're part of a, what's called Land to Market Australia, and so they, we do ecological 
it's called Ecological Verification Outcome, EBO. And so it's a internationally recognised, not quality assurance program, it's just a monitoring program. And what it does is it, you know, you do yearly monitoring, then every five years we do more thorough monitoring on a couple of different sites on our property. And it's just to, to show what's happening. We're measuring like soil biology, soil bulk density, um, doing soil tests, but then we're doing ground cover monitoring measuring um, diversity of plants, insects, bugs, all these different types of things. So that that is um, the idea behind that is that will um, put us in a position to, you know, certify produce from our property as um, as regenerative, I, I assume. And we're saying that because we've got the data behind it to show that what's happening ecologically on our, on our property. Um, the other part of it, uh, is I've just what was the other part of the question? Oh, uh, does it does to be labelled regen in your view? You have to have some element of livestock in the in the in the enterprise. Yeah, yeah. So no, well, I mean, uh, I don't know if you guys have heard of Gay Brown, but he's got those six soil health principles, like and um, you know, maximise ground cover. Um, you want a green growing plant uh, for as long as period of time that you can. Um, armour on the soil, diversity of plants and species, and incorporating livestock. And the livestock one is the controversial one, I suppose, you know, especially what, what I was saying before. You go 10 k south of us and you could go 30, 40 k's with hardly any livestock at all. And, um, like, livestock have been really vilified in this space. Like, they're not – a lot of the things that people say why you shouldn't have livestock involved is it's just – it's just not right. Like, they, you need the livestock in the system from a biological perspective to keep that cycling going, especially in a brittle environment. You need the biology in the room and – to transfer the to get that um, nutrient cycling over those hot, dry periods of time, um, and yeah, so the, the livestock are extremely important, and also just resource efficiency. You've, you've got all this residue there after a crop. You like why not utilize it? Uh, it it's going to give you another enterprise, diversity of income, diversity of markets. Um, yeah, it it I, you really do need the livestock in there. Uh, there's guys around here who you know I'm in contact with who are sort of saying, oh, we're going to try and do this without livestock. And I mean, good on them. I reckon that's great. But the reality is you will need that. Like the grasslands of the world evolved with with livestock, you know. the cows uh, In cows' urine, there's a hormone that stimulates perennial grass growth. Like So they co-evolved. They basically need, like, you know, when a bird sings in a tree, it's, uh, it signals the stomata of a plant to wake up and start photosynthesizing. Like those things uh, have evolved uh, through evolution. So they, you need animals, you need livestock in the system to get uh, the most out of it. Right, I reckon we've covered everything today, mate. Do you reckon? We, um, I think we're going to touch a bit more on the carbon capture, but um, I reckon we might, because um, we've done a bit, here i think if we go into carbon capture and, and the benefits of that we might have a whole new podcast and running to about an hour and a half but i reckon michael could we call this part one and then maybe in a we might get a bit of feedback from our listeners too and then we might revisit and have a part two at a later stage where we just focus in on on the carbon capture narrative and and maybe even the biodiversity because they're i guess um you know another a- avenue of where um, you know, certainly if you look to the future of what's, you know, trying to be achieved in this space, that there's some of the big, um, the big achievements that could be, could be ascertained, isn't it, biodiversity and getting, I guess, credit for biodiversity and also getting some cash coming through from a carbon capture uh, program. Which, so which, I think, which, which I think is a, is a bit longer than the next 
then it's 10 minutes. So no, that's exactly that's exactly what I'm saying. So I think we might um I think we might kind of yeah close we'll come this back, one we'll up. come back for the sequel. I think so. Yeah, I think so because um it's been it's been a fascinating discussion uh definitely. So we appreciate you coming on but we we like to not have the um podcast going too long because we know our, our listeners of um they can't sit around and listen to us nattering around all day. They've only, um, they've only got short attention spans remember. <laughs> but but one, one thing I just wanted to like going back to what you said about the people being negative towards your way of farming and i think this is a is an issue in agriculture in that we we get critical of how other people do things whereas my view is you own the land do what the hell you want with it as long as it's not interfering with the neighbors and it's not an issue and i suppose from our point of view you know we, we've got an intensive farm uh, so so clearly we've probably as criticized probably more yeah, so than, a, than, than real... region ag <laughs> But, sorry, but, sorry. but as long as you're doing what you want to do and it's and you're doing it within the, the rules of the law, then I don't really see why people can criticise, you know. Yeah. I think the way that line crosses is you've got to be really careful, you know, with the old social licence. And if you're there and you're just flogging the hell out of your country and it's blowing away, like that's not, that's not good for anyone. Um, and, you know, we've just... Oh, well, it's a bit of a memory now, but like that 1819 up mm. our way was really horrible. And, you know, unfortunately, you didn't have to drive too far from home and you'd see some places that were thinking, well, geez, like that's not a good look. You know, we're on the national, we're on the Sturt Highway, on the main highway between Sydney and Adelaide. And, um, I, you know, I'm quite proud of how we, how our landscape looked uh, through all that time. We had to make some tough, tough decisions, you know, financially, ecologically and, uh, mentally to get us through that period of time um, and we took responsibility for that and I think what's one other little point that I'd like to sort of add is I know from my personal mindset is you know we take responsibility for our actions we we're accountable for what we're doing um, we're not blaming the weather because you know we don't have any ground cover like we're managing that ourselves that's something within our control we I know, you know, I don't really pay too much attention to the weather forecast because that's something I can't have anything to do with. I, and I don't need to be out checking wind speed for spraying stuff or, you know, the only time is you know, I might have a bit of a look at a forecast if we're going to do some cattle work to see if it's pissing down rain in the cattle yards. That's about it. <laughs> but, like, but what do, we do, do that. So is take do responsibility yeah. uh, for, you know, and don't blame, you know, don't do a um, – the old sob story on Twitter or, you know, worst case scenario in the Channel 7 News saying, oh, we're all ruined because, you know, it hasn't rained. And it's like, well, it hasn't rained 5K down the road and you've got a completely different outcome. Uh, and that's because of the management of the of the people in the business. And I think that's one of those things from an ag perspective, whether you're regen or anyone, is you've got to be accountable for your actions and you've got to be, um, you know, take responsibility for it. Uh, as land managers and you know we see ourselves as a you know custodian of the land and so that's we're just here for a very short period of time and we want to do the best by it good point um before we i'll get andrew to do the closing minute, but one last quick question just that you made me think of when um when you talked about that most recent drought so did you have any given given your di different system to some of your neighbors um some of those people that may be in opposition did they during the drought did you get anyone that kind of looked enviously across and saw a bit more green and a bit more different pasture and, and then was there a bit of a change in, in perception or did anyone kind of start talking to you again at the pub saying oh tell me a bit more about this region because my my land's looking flogged and dry and dusty and yours is looking pretty good considering the no rain um or did they just kind of 
not not really worry about it. Um, well, we actually one of the great things was we took a lot of cattle on adjustment of our neighbour straight after the drought, which was really great for us because we didn't have to take that market risk. You know, we had a couple of hundred steers on, and he was still hand feeding them. So that for us, we had uh, low value. Well. Low cost feed for us, um, and you know that was really great short term income. Um, so that was, you know, in in some ways, part of it is the I'm sort of pleased that that's an opportunity for us. Um, and you know, yeah, it's interesting. Only about about a month ago, I had another neighbour sort of just call in suddenly one day and was asking about a couple of things, and then just on the way out, he was like, "Oh, geez, you know, I'm interested in what you're doing." So. Um, Joel Saladin sort of said it only takes 40 years for your neighbours to come along and ask you what's going on. <laughs> and so I'm pretty pleased because it's only taken 10 years for one of mine. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of the time is people aren't paying attention to it. Like it's – it's uh, Charles Massey sort of talks about landscape literacy. And um, I don't know what you guys are like. I'm a shocker when I'm driving. My, hate, my wife hates driving with me because I'm always looking out, you know, what's going on in the paddock. My ability now, I see things completely different to what I would have, you know, 10, 20 years ago and what I'm looking for in a paddock, um, how the landscape's functioning, um, I see, yeah, I, and so I'm just looking for different things and I don't, I don't think that the majority, unfortunately, of land managers are actually observant of what's going on. They, they, they're seeing the old fence line effect thinking, oh, that guy must get more rain and it's like it doesn't occur to them that actually, hang on, it could be management that that's actually part of that. Mm. Um, so, yeah, but... Yeah, I don't know. It doesn't really. It doesn't really. I, I control what I can control, and I do what I can do, and that's that's about it. That's that's a good. That's a good final statement before mm. we, before we leave. I think that sums it up pretty well. So thanks thanks for coming along, Michael. Like it, like again, it's good to get another view because we had uh, John's view a couple of months ago. And, and it's good to get another view on region. And and, we're, and Matt and I are always pretty pretty open minded. And well, 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 I am Matt. <laughs> Matt's a bit older than me. He's, he's a different generation. Uh, but but no, it's good to get you on. Uh, thanks very much for coming along. Uh, and if and hopefully things turn out well this year, we hopefully get the rain that we need. Uh, even though you're managing it, but it's still good to get the rain. Uh, <laughs> but uh, thanks for listening, everyone who's listening in at home or the tractor or the car, wherever you are. Uh, if you like the podcast, send it on to your friends and family. If you didn't like the podcast, send it on to the people you don't like. Uh, if you if you could leave a review, that would be nice. Uh, but yeah, thanks for listening. Ciao for thanks. now. Thanks, guys. See you when you got nothing on. Thanks, Michael. Yeah, no, no dramas. I appreciate the opportunity to to um to talk. Yeah.